This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today, our legal roundtable is in session. We'll talk about the Missouri lawyer who managed to avoid getting disbarred, even though he was caught on video groping no fewer than six clients. How is that even possible? We'll talk about a former school administrator suing her employer for failing to stop harassment from the public. And we'll talk about St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. Of course, we will talk about St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. And joining me now in studio is our esteemed panel. First up is Eric Banks. He's the former city councilor for the city of St. Louis, and he's an attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Eric, welcome. Thank you. And we're also joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor in both state and federal court. She now practices at Jenkins and Clayton PC. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And last but never least, this month we are joined by Marianne Sade. She is a partner at Sade Harper Westoff. She's also a nationally recognized labor and employment attorney. Marianne, welcome back. It's always great to be here. So Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey says his case against St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has only grown stronger. Bailey brought a, a rare quo warrento, I keep saying rare quo warrento, rare quo warrento against Gardner. And he'll have to make the case that she knowingly and willfully failed to do her duty as a prosecutor. Nicole, you were a prosecutor for years. What do you make of the case that Andrew Bailey has presented thus far? I think that, you know, we can talk about Kim Gardner all day long, but I think this Quo Warrento case has a very high standard. And I think we've talked about that before. So Bailey is bringing several claims trying to reach that high standard, but I'm not sure they quite make it there. So a lot of the claims that he makes, like, for example, that she failed in her duty to review warrant applications that there's an eight-month backlog. I mean, those are these are kind of subjective things. I mean, what is the appropriate backlog? Does that really equate to the equivalent of abandoning your office? These are all things that I think are maybe not quite strong enough to really meet the quo warrento standard. Hmm, that's a hard standard there, Marianne. It's a very difficult standard to meet. I mean, I just don't need, know any lawyers who wouldn't agree that there's been mismanagement, perhaps uh, malfeasance in terms of uh, bringing the kinds of cases that need to be brought, but it's really a tough standard. So, Eric, you have also dealt with, um, you know, public office. You've been in these situations. What do you make of what Andrew Bailey has found so far? I think it's political grandstanding, and I think that the lawsuit is fruitless, worthless, and without merit in its entirety. So do you think that means it's not going to go anywhere? That might be a separate question. I mean, we have in this case, we have an appellate court judge who's going to be deciding this. I don't think that there is any risk of Kim being adversely ruled against in this action. And besides the ultimate decision maker or the voters of the city of St. Louis, there's going to be an election next year. I would be highly surprised if this action would work its way through the system. 
before the election comes. So this might even just be a question of timing, even beyond all the issues all three of you are seeing with the standard that they have to reach. Judge uh, John Torbitsky is in charge in this case, and he has set a hearing for April 18th where he's going to be ruling on a whole bunch of stuff. Does the, the, that date and the way this case has proceeded so far give us any sense of how fast this could go? Nicole, any thoughts on that? I don't really think so. I mean, it's still going to be a case where it's, a, you know, it's a lawsuit. It's going to have to run its course and lawsuits take significant time. I, You know, it's great they're having a quick hearing, but, you know, lawsuits take significant time and no matter what. And, you know, actually, the more complex it becomes with the filing of this new pleading, the more discovery there's going to be on behalf of both sides. So I think we're looking at something long and slow. And, um, you know, it's ultimately a question for the residents of the city of St. Louis. So in the meantime, as you mentioned, there have been a number of people who are raising concerns about this office. Again, whether these hit the level that are required for this type of case, totally different question. But it seems like more and more things are coming out every week where, where people are concerned about some specific things. Here's an example. Uh, Judge Timothy Boyer sanctioned Gardner twice for her actions in the case of a man accused of a double homicide. In this case, she's accused of violating the interstate agreement on detainers. Um, this sounds like a really serious deal. Nicole, is it? So um, it's really mundane issue for prosecutors. The interstate agreement on detainers basically says that if you have somebody who has cases in multiple jurisdictions, uh, when you send them to one, you have to finish all of those cases in that place before you send them back. So it's it's an anti-shuttling provision, meaning you can't move somebody back and forth and back and forth as their cases proceed. You have to do one at a time. And so um, it, it was interesting in some of the things that I read that that was coming up because that, that issue is kind of mundane. The more important issue, I think, was the discovery violations and the circuit attorneys not turning certain things over in cases that could potentially be exculpatory. That is a big deal. And that has come up now in a couple of different cases. Uh, the Riverfront Times wrote about a different one. Defense attorney David Mueller says the circuit attorney withheld evidence for two years. He makes a pretty good case that this led to an innocent man languishing in jail during those two years with this hanging overhead. Eric Banks, hearing about this kind of thing, that they're not turning over discovery for two years, is this something that judges could be taking a firmer hand with to keep it from getting to the point where we're saying, okay, this guy's now been vindicated, you get to go home? I think the judges are doing a fair and impartial job of mediating this. Also, many of the challenges that are falling upon the Gardner administration are similar to the ch challenges that I faced back in the 80s as an assistant circuit attorney under George Peach. It just wasn't publicized as much. Perhaps George Peach had a better press agent. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm dating myself. <laughs> um, a better communication liaison. <laughs> Communications liaison, there you go. So this type of fighting over discovery, you're not seeing anything new here. No, I'm not. I mean, it's always distressing, but um, I won't be dismissive and say that it goes with the territory, but the circuit attorney's office is an extremely fast-paced, high-volume operations. And I used to say the only difference between um, the circuit attorney's office and big law 
is the margin for error, or maybe I should say the tolerance for error. At Big Law, the tolerance for error is like 1%. At the circuit attorney's office, it may be, let's say, 3%. I lost my first five jury trials to Brad Kessler. All of them were patronizing prostitution charges. And um, George Peach wasn't happy about it, but I didn't get fired. Nor did anybody try to file a Latin action against the, I can't pronounce, Quo Warwinto or whatever. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one here. Nicole, I saw you nodding at, at some of the things Eric was saying there. Does that resonate as a former prosecutor? This is a very fast-paced environment. And in some cases, like the circuit attorney's office right now, this is a small staff. Sure. I mean, when I was a prosecutor, I was in Columbia, Boone County, Missouri, and I carried and I did child sex abuse cases. I carried a caseload of 200 at a time. I think they're talking about the circuit attorney's office. The attorneys are each carrying 400 at a time. It's not unusual. It may be sad, but it's not unusual. And it goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning, which is, you know, an eight-month backlog. Well, well, I think a lot of offices have some backlog. What's, you know, how are we going to quibble over what's a reasonable backlog and what's not? And, mm-hmm. you know, so, again, it goes to this standard of, you know, how do you say that things that typically happen in prosecutors' offices happen to an extent that's not appropriate, and where do you draw those lines? Question I have looking at the docket on this case, uh, one of the assistant circuit attorneys who's been kind of high profile, people blaming her for for some of the mistakes that they feel have been made, she's now engaged an attorney of her own. If somebody from within inside the office came in and said, no, this is unusual, this goes beyond the realm, Marianne, would that make a difference? Well, I'm sure that the attorney general is going to come up with some witnesses like that, perhaps call them experts. Um, But... You know, it's it's still a question of what the standard is. It's quo warrento. <laughs> we are all struggling today. Quo warrento. Despite my, you know, Latin in high school, I can't do it. Anyway, I mean, you have to remember that we're dealing with a question of whether somebody's just not doing a very good job. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, that they're not doing a very good job there. But that's really different than what you have to prove to pull somebody out of their elected office. That's right. I mean, if we could turn the term quo warrento, which is so freaking hard to say, into basically abandonment of office. I mean, mm. that's a, that's essentially the high level that we're talking about. You essentially have to abandon the office. Boy, that is a high level when you put it that way. Thank you for translating quo warento into I mean, English. I, I can't say that's the true, correct Latin definition, but, that's, but, close. but legally, that's essentially what it means. So maybe you have questions about what our esteemed panel is talking about today, about how this could all play out legally or some of the specific legal issues um, at play here. I'm going to open the phone lines, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Now, I do want to mention Kim Gardner hosted what was framed as a, quote, criminal justice reform roundtable on Tuesday. And she made remarks at this that, frankly, seemed a bit less focused on criminal justice reform as a whole, more focused on her political survival. So in these remarks to a church packed with supporters, she described facing criticism from, quote, a perfect intersection of who's in office and individuals trying to sabotage your office. To have individuals have an actual political agenda to stop justice, that's a problem. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, like the attorney general 
the elected, unelected attorney general can make statements and tell me I got up to high noon to get out of an office like we're in some kind of Western. And that is Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. She was at the Westside Missionary Baptist Church earlier this week. She says she's going to run again. I think an interesting question in the legal community. I hear a lot of people talking about, um, you know, if Eric is right about how long it's going to take this case to proceed, are we going to see um, a strong candidate decide to throw their hat in the ring to challenge her? Or are people going to defend her against the Missouri Attorney General and what a lot of people see as overreach? What's the word you hear on the street, Marianne? You know, I'm going to just talk about the word I read in the paper, and that is she's lost the support of Mayor Tashara Jones. And when she loses that support, we know that she's in trouble um, in her own community. And so, you know, part of the problem here is that people in her own community are being affected by the mismanagement of that office, both you know, the citizens who need to be protected from crime and the people charged with crime who are entitled to a fair shake, for instance, getting the proper discovery. So this is not a situation in which I would say, well, you know, this part of the world or that part of the world has been particularly impacted. Everybody in the city is impacted by this. Mm -hmm. So I would expect, and I'm not an insider and I don't pretend to be, I would expect that there will be people who will run in that primary. We should also mention, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Kim Gardner. Should she be removed from office? Should she resign? A different prosecutor in the metro area very suddenly resigned yesterday. It was not Kim Gardner. It was St. Charles uh, prosecuting attorney Tim Lomar. A um, lot of interesting stuff happening here in the metro area. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is attorney Marianne Sadeh. We're also joined by Eric Banks and Nicole Gorofsky. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a really interesting case involving a former employee of the Rockwood School District now suing that district. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Lewis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske, and today our legal roundtable is in session. Here's a really interesting case. A former administrator who resigned her job in the Rockwood School District is suing the district. Brittany Hogan was the district's director of educational equity and diversity. She says she became a, quote, scapegoat for white rage, and that by letting that happen, the district violated state laws against race-based harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. And what seems pretty interesting to me here is that she's not alleging harassment by colleagues, but by the public. Marianne, you know all about employment law cases. What do you make of this case here? Her legal theory is absolutely sound. It is based on a long line of cases that say that an employer has an obligation to create a ha harassment-free environment, and that includes harassment by coworkers, members of the public, clients, customers. Some of the earliest cases were... Um, situations in which uh, customers didn't want to deal with a black person or didn't want to deal with a woman in a particular kind of job. And the law is very clear that the employer has that obligation. 
Now, one of the most interesting things to me about this case is that it starts with sort of some outrage about a book that is going to be used in one of the schools um, that a bunch of people don't like. It turns out that this African-American woman, who is the employee who's bringing the lawsuit, had nothing to do with that book being used by the district. And yet, because she's a black person who's in an administrative position, she becomes the target of outrage. And, you know, it's pretty simple. This is about the color of her skin. Uh, This is about her race. Um, if you want to be angry about the book, why aren't you raising hell about the person who uh, put the book in the curriculum? Yeah, you know? bring this to the white administrator who picked it or whoever. Right. Instead, it ends up on her. So what could the district have done to reduce, its, its at minimum, its liability in this type of case? Well, you know, they had an obligation to protect her. Um, they absolutely were required to do that. And not only did they not take any action to try to diffuse some of this or get it uh, shared more generally by them, because, of course, they don't want to take the blame for the book being in the curriculum. Not only did they do that, but then they turned on her. And there's all kinds of criticism of her telling her she really needs to just lay low and put up with it. I mean, it's sort of one-on-one in harassment cases. You can't tell the victim of the harassment that they just need to get a thicker skin. Mm -hmm. They just need to put up with it. Um, it's just not the kind of thing that any employee should have to endure in order to do their job. Eric, hearing the details of what this woman woman endured, this is some heartbreaking stuff. I mean, and hearing Marianne say so clearly that the district did not maintain what it needed to do here. And that's an excellent example of why I shivered in my boots whenever I had to defend a lawsuit that Marianne today brought because <laughs> of the passion and eloquence in which she expresses herself. But um, paraphrasing Mary Ann Day, there is no doubt of the obligation of an employer to protect an employee from racial discrimination and harassment, and it doesn't matter who's bringing it. Nicole? Yeah, and I'll say even worse than failing to protect her, then they started really affecting her ability to do her job. So I guess some of the harshest... Uh, I'm going to call them threats because it sounds like she was having threats against her. We're coming out of this Eureka area. And then they basically told her how she should deal with that is just not go to the Eureka area. And it turns out that's where the administrative office is. And she's an administrator. So really, some of this stuff is just nonsensical and very harmful. So Eric uh, made a good point there that Marianne in court can be a terrifying thing for employers who have behaved badly. Marianne, do you think there could be big damages in this case? Sure. I mean, we are seeing that jurors understand what that kind of harassment and retaliation can do to you. I think there's no question she has what we employment lawyers call a constructive discharge case. She didn't have any choice but to resign. What was she going to do, just stay and put up with it? You know, um, some people do, but that's because they feel totally cornered. They feel like they have no no alternative. Um, but this situation actually sounded dangerous. It sounded dangerous. Um, and, you know, the, if you want to talk about the legal principles, I mean, 
one of the indicia of harassment is uh, creating a situation in which the person can't do their job, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Nicole's talking about here. So so does Missouri law, the way that it's written, I know everything's limited in different ways. Is there a chance that a jury could say, hey, this is so bad, we want to send a message. This doesn't just go down to lost wages. Is that allowed? It is allowed, but unfortunately in Missouri we have damages caps in these cases. Um, And depending on the number of employees that you have, the maximum emotional distress and punitive damages that you can be awarded in Missouri is $500,000, and that's for the biggest employers. So, um, yeah, this is bad conduct, and yet she may well, very likely will be limited in the amount of money she can recover. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I think outside the legal system, we will hear about things like the infamous and apparently um, inaccurately told McDonald's coffee, and we're thinking, oh, this is going to be millions and millions of dollars. Just the way the law is written, no matter how bad it is, that's not how this can work. Yeah, what what can happen in these cases is a, a jury will award whatever they think is appropriate, maybe millions and millions of dollars. And then under Missouri law, given the caps, that amount has to be reduced to the limit of the caps. So this is a sobering case. It sounds like this should have the Rockwood School District's attention. There has been so much happening in that district. It's going to be interesting to see if it actually does have their attention. Here's another one. Switching gears here. This is another local attorney who finds himself in the spotlight. And this is Al Watkins. That's a name that is known to many people who enjoy coverage of legal issues. Um, Al is known for his love of the media spotlight. I'm just going to leave it at that. He's now being sued by a former client. This client says he hired Al Watkins to handle his matter discreetly. And that didn't happen. This guy's name. Paul Henroyd. He pleaded guilty to invasion of privacy in 1999. He'd been accused of secretly filming sex partners through a camera attached to an alarm clock. And this, here's a detail you just can't make up. This is while this Paul Henroyd was a law student moonlighting as a stripper. He was also accused of of showing the recordings to others for his own entertainment. Well, then he changed his name to Paul Henroyd like the actor in Casablanca, but not the actor in Casablanca, um, and sought to expunge his conviction. He wanted to fly below the radar. That was the whole point of changing his name, he says. And then Al Watkins, his lawyer, went on a media blitz. Nicole, could Al Watkins be in some legal trouble over this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, so you you really have to listen to your client, and you are representing a client. You are not out there for your own personal gain. You have to do what your client wants. And specifically, this person was coming for an expungement, which was to get this thing off their record. So, of course, they didn't want people out there talking about it. It's pretty obvious. And so, yeah, you, he could be in serious trouble about this. What if your lawyer's really sort of pushing this strategy because this strategy works? I mean, in this case, I think part of Al Watkins' defense is, yeah, this guy ended up being able to get the expungement. Eric, could a a lawyer say, hey, I know better than you. I'm just going to go ahead and do this because this is going to get the result we need. No. (laughs) The, The client always has the right to dictate the terms of engagement, the strategies, and everything. Um, so absolutely. Hmm. Marianne, I think of you as a lawyer where you have a lot of really interesting cases that the media might be very interested in. And yet I feel like we never hear from you until after you win a big verdict. I'm wondering if that has to do with 
this type of thing, that this can go south. Publicity about a case when it's sort of mid-case can be detrimental sometimes to clients. Well, you know, I'm one of those lawyers who thinks you don't want to try your case in the media because you're going to have to try it someday in front of a judge and a jury, and that's where you get your client relief. So I tend not to do a media strategy prior to the uh, trial. It, it, it often backfires. It really does, because people say things that get used against them later. Um, the lawyer is subject to being considered just kind of in it for their own good or after money mm-hmm. and money only. And so there's just so many things that it's not a good idea to do it. Now, as a journalist who relies on lawyers being willing to talk to me, I hope no one was just listening to what Marianne had to say. Nicole, I think of you as, as somewhat different in that sometimes you would use media attention very strategically to help your clients. And I did. I was a little more liberal about this, especially in representing uh, survivors of sexual assault and childhood sexual assault, um, only in the sense that there were pros and there were pros and cons to doing media, and some of the pros in those sexual assault cases was that more victims in society will feel validated, more victims of that particular perpetrator may feel more validated, more people may come forward, and so that's why I did it. But 100%, I always got my client's permission. We talked about those pros and cons. You may have heard me in the media talking about those cases, but what you didn't hear were the cases where the client said no. Yeah, and you were very respectful of that in those cases. So here's an interesting wrinkle on this. This guy, Paul Henreid, as he now goes by, you know, he pled guilty to this charge. And part of why all this was coming up is that he went to law school and ended up becoming a lawyer. Uh, Eric, I can't help but be somewhat surprised by that. I'm thinking of the famous case of Stephen Glass, you know, this this fabricator who was a journalist and drummed out of the journalism industry, tried to become a lawyer. California wouldn't let him in. Are you surprised a guy with this kind of background is even able to contemplate these questions as a member of the bar? No, I'm not. I mean, um, um, he has a right to have made a mistake in the past, Mm -hmm. and he has recovered and um, I just don't see anything that he has done that would interfere with him being a lawyer. Hmm. Marianne, do you, do you feel that same way? Well, I agree with Eric. I believe in redemption. I think it happens. I think t- people do change. And we have not heard a hint in this case that there's been anything similar since 1999. So I feel certain that he was carefully investigated by the Missouri Bar before he got his license, and he may have been under some limitation early on that we all don't know about. But I ha- I would think that if there'd been misconduct in the meantime, we're like almost 25 years later now, that would be discussed in some of these articles. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Marianne Sade. We're also joined by Eric Banks and Nicole Gorofsky. We're going to have to take a quick break here, but when we come back, We're going to talk about a different lawyer with some much more recent misconduct and how the Missouri Supreme Court chose to handle this case. It may surprise some of you. Uh, This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association 
committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske. I'm here today with our Legal Roundtable. So we've been talking about attorney misconduct. Uh, The last case we talked about was something way back, 25 years ago. Somebody aired and apparently uh, became a better person. Well, much more recently, a defense attorney who was caught on camera groping half a dozen clients Yes, caught on video. He's managed to avoid disbarment. This decision came from the Missouri Supreme Court this month. It gives a reprieve to 86-year-old Dan Purdy. It actually overruled the disciplinary hearing panel. Eric Banks, are you surprised by this? Yes, I am. Yes, um, you don't make friends and influence people by questioning the decision of the Missouri Supreme Court, but I don't back their play on this one. Yeah. Uh, Nicole, I mean, you specialize um, for a long time in your career. You specialize in representing victims of sexual assault. It seems like the pattern in this case is not only much more clear cut than we're than we're likely to mostly get in cases like this, um, but that it almost felt compulsive that he kept doing it and doing it. Yeah, I mean, this is horrendous. I mean, so again, I'm, I'm with Eric and I also want to be careful about criticizing the Missouri Supreme Court. But, I mean, it seemed like some of the rationale of not punishing him more harshly was, well, he's an older guy. I think he was in his 80s. And, you know, I have no idea. Were they trying to take that into account or something? But, you know, Judge Fisher, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, just blasted them and said, you know, look, there may this is literally a quote. There may have been a time when a temporary suspension was an adequate punishment for sexually assaulting or harassing a client vulnerable or otherwise. But in my view, that time is long gone. And I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, I mean, this was a blistering dissent uh, from Judge Fisher that two other justices, I should say, this was very much a split verdict. Um, Marianne, looking at this, I wonder not only how do you not get disbarred for this, how do you not get criminally charged for this? Well, that's a great question. Um, I don't know anything about this case other than what I read. But I just got to say, I was flabbergasted. I mean, I was just amazed when I read the reports. You know, so he's in his 80s. What's that got to do with it? You know, Um, and some of these people were incarcerated. Yeah. And completely vulnerable. Um, And that really bothered me about the situation. It's one thing. If somebody touches you in a bar and you can leave, um, it becomes more difficult work at work when somebody touches you at work. But at least you're not there all the time having to deal with it. But, man, these people were incarcerated. That was really very disturbing. I agree. That was galling. And they mention this almost as this is a point in his defense. Oh, he was helping indigent people. And I'm thinking he was praying on indigent people. Vulnerable people. Vulnerable people. This is a very disturbing case. Now, I should clarify that they did not disbar him. He would have to reapply. He would have to apply for reinstatement in a year is when he'd be eligible to do this. You'd have to think an 86-year-old man may not even bother with that. Is there a reason this guy would be desperate to keep his law license, Eric? Yes, he probably has the same type of retirement plan that I have. (laughs) Mine is called a pine box because I'll be working until they put me in one. So um, 
many times the skills that it takes to become a successful attorney are not the skills that it takes to become a um, solvent money manager. And perhaps, um, like me, this lawyer has made some bad decisions through the years, and he has to continue to work. So he's going to go out and possibly continue to grope indigent women under the guise of being their attorney. I hope he's learned his lesson. I sure hope so. Well, Marianne was talking there about just the power that people have over people who are incarcerated, and that's a good transition to another extremely disturbing case in the state of Missouri. Nine Muslim men serving sentences in the Bon Terre prison filed suits saying they were beaten by guards for praying. Now, these men apparently routinely prayed, did it in this area. Um, One day in February of 2021, a guard informed them while they were mid-prayer that there would be no more prayers in the housing unit. They tried to finish the prayers first. The guard apparently flew into a rage. Five of the men were pepper sprayed. One was beaten for more than 15 hours afterwards. They were left in clothes soaked with pepper spray, held in segregation with no heat, no running water, no fresh clothes, no lights. These are harrowing allegations, and yet harrowing doesn't always mean a slam-dunk legal case. Nicole, do you see a a good legal case here from these nine men? Yes. I mean, this is horrible. I, I mean, you can't do this, obviously. Again, you've got incarcerated people. They're vulnerable. They're stuck where they are. These people were purely trying to exercise their constitutional rights. It's not okay. And so you do see that the religious freedom aspect here, this is going to be something they can use? Sure. Yep. I mean, that's the thing that we have prisoners rights cases all the time. And that's a big issue is the ability to practice your own religion. Marianne, uh, your thoughts on this case? Well, I thought it was very significant that a a few days after this incident, the uh, deputy warden in this prison uh, met with all the Muslim prisoners and acknowledged that what had happened was wrong. Hmm. Um, What this is really going to come down to is, um, I think, damages and remedies. Um, It's it's a very odd case. Uh, One of the reasons they were they were uh, praying in the housing unit was that during COVID, the chapel had been closed down. So they couldn't go to the chapel anymore, which had been their prior practice. Um, it's, it's a very, uh, I just don't understand why this particular day, but it does, I think, give a good example of the kind of bad stuff that can happen to people who are incarcerated because somebody gets mad. Yeah. Um, it does sound like you're saying, well, what even happened here? It sounds like this guard just kind of snapped, like maybe she's having a bad day for other reasons. That is not an excuse, obviously. But it sounds like there's no clear reason for this to upset her the way that it did. Not that I can see. And the, it's, it was very interesting to me. It's a beautifully drafted uh, petition. And it is being brought by a uh, firm in Washington, D.C., that I I guess is very likely an advocacy firm. So somebody else besides us sitting in this room was really outraged by this and willing to get involved. So, And somebody snapped in addition to that prison guard, too, because it could not have been done in isolation. That it wasn't just one person. That's and this right. was a, a bevy of, yes. of guards. It is hard to tell whether it was just this one prison guard snapped and then started <laughs> screaming this code that meant that she was being attacked. And so it's hard to know if the others knew the reason that they came in and were behaving this way. That'll be an interesting issue in the case, I think. But 
at least one person snapped. Hmm. One of the other interesting things I thought in this case, uh, here's a, a quote from the lawsuit. The brutality began as an effort to disrupt Muslims praying together, but morphed into a protracted effort to punish those who prayed, dispersing the plaintiffs throughout the state via transfers and otherwise retaliating against them. Now, I know from many of the employment law type cases that we've covered and, and talked about on this show that sometimes retaliation is the easier thing to prove. You can show that after somebody complained that the employer retaliated and that's that's an easy victory there. But prisons have broad power over inmates. They can just go transfer people around, and it's not necessarily clear-cut. Marianne, is that going to be a harder case to prove in a prison than it might be in a normal employment-type setting? I think I would say yes to that. I mean, there's going to be a lot of skepticism uh, by the fact finder about, you know, trusting the word of people who are in jail. But I do think that so much of what happened here is so clearly retaliatory that um, it's, it's, I think a lot of juries will see it. And one of the things I want to mention, it's a sideline, but I just saw that there was another victory uh, last week in St. Francis County uh, against the Department of Corrections. And there's something wrong in the Department of Corrections in Missouri. I, I just want to say that really loud and clear. There have been so many cases of harassment and discrimination against employees mm-hmm. um, that have been won against the Department of Corrections with big verdicts. And there's something wrong there and somebody needs to address it. And if you're treating employees that way, imagine when you're treating uh, prisoners who have so little protection and so little ability to uh, deal with what's happening to them um, similarly. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. And you're right. There have been a number of high-profile cases here. Something that is fascinating in this case, it's the same as with uh, the uh, 86-year-old attorney who managed to avoid disbarment. So much of this is caught on videotape. And I think a lot of us who who pay attention to police brutality, we were hoping that things like uh, body-worn cameras by officers would stop these types of beatings and these actions. They don't seem to stop them, but they often seem to provide a really valuable tool for attorneys coming in trying to clean up the mess. Eric, are you surprised that prison guards would engage in this type of behavior at a point when they know that this entire workplace is being recorded? I've said it before. I'll say it again. This world is full of a lot of bad people, and these bad people don't stop to consider the consequences of their actions ahead of time. They're just being bad. And that's the way these prison guards are. They're just being bad. And they don't care what the consequences are. Nicole? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, or an even more terrifying thought is, was there more before we had these cameras? And it's actually gone down, but we're still seeing the ones that are caught on video. It's a terrifying thought. There is a terrifying thought, because it feels like what we're seeing is bad enough. I'm going to switch gears. We're talking about some bad people Let's talk about some bad teenagers. Um, The city has filed a lawsuit against Kia and Hyundai in federal court. They're basically saying these cars are just too easy to steal. There's a lot of evidence that these cars are too easy to steal and that every single person growing up in the city of St. Louis seems to have figured out how to steal these cars. 
Do you think there's much of a case there to say that the auto manufacturers are responsible for that, not just the individuals who are getting in there and, and tampering with these cars? Marianne? Well, you know, there's a very simple device that ought to be on those cars. It's on most other cars. So, I mean, at least from that point of view, it makes sense to me that there's a defect in the design and manufacture of the car. Yeah. And so that opens the door for the city to get in. Um, do you think there's going to be any question of standing on the part of the city? Sure. Absolutely. That will be the first attack by the manufacturers, I feel confident. And for those of the people who are not regularly trying to prove standing in court, tell us how this sort of plays out, why this is so important to any case like this. Well, you know, there are a lot of bad things that happen. The question is, are you or is this institution affected by them, damaged by them? Um, you know, so if an individual brought that claim, it would be very clear that the individual has standing. The question is whether the city of St. Louis has standing to bring this claim on behalf of its citizens? It's a really interesting question. But I think that, and I agree, but I think that there's ways to get around the standing issues. Many times municipalities have faced standing issues with lead paint litigation. Mm -hmm. They faced it with tobacco litigation, but they were not successful. The, the defendants were not successful. Um, I think the city gets over the standing argument by saying, we had to divert police resources to chasing after these miscreants who stole the cars that would, could have been better devoted to something else. So therefore, we can monetize the amount that the police spent and then that becomes damages. Okay. The police and the court system, maybe even, since they're also trying to prosecute these well, cases? Well, the court system is state government. Okay. So that doesn't help the city there. Right. Nicole, do you think this works better as a, a case that the city could bring, or do you think this would work as individual Kia owners filing a class action lawsuit saying, hey, you gave me this defective product? Right. So, of course, it's a stronger case as a class action of the individuals because just like we said, the standing issue is, you know, a lot more clear when you're talking about these car owners. But I don't necessarily think we can rule out the city as a plaintiff in this case because it did actually cost. So it's so what the causation issue is, you know, did the um, bad acts of the person being sued actually cause the damages to the entity that's suing? And here, you know, I think the city actually has an argument that, you know, these these manufacturers caused their damages because, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, it took, you know, endless. Not only did people were people stealing these cars, so the individuals lost out, but then there were police chases, there were crimes committed in these cars. There were, I mean, it's been a, like a crime spree over this situation. And so, yeah, I think the city has a decent argument for standing here. Yeah, I think for city residents, this has really been a terrible six months or so, and that so many police resources are going into this. Eric, I understand this is something of a shift in thinking um, on the part of the city that they want to do this sort of proactive litigation as opposed to maybe the city councilor's office just trying to defend the city for all the people who would like to help itself to their coffers. Yes, it's my understanding that the city councilor's office has set up a new affirmative action division, and that name has nothing to do with employment. It basically means that they're going to affirmatively take action and take the fight 
to these corporations that are causing the people harm. It's interesting. We saw this big trend, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago at this point, where state attorneys general were increasingly interested in bringing these sorts of cases. Now we have, in some of our blue cities in the middle of red states, we're also seeing city government get in on this. Nicole, do you think this is a favorable trend? I was going to say, boy, Sarah, isn't that an interesting commentary on our state attorney general that seems to not be doing these types of things that our community may actually be interested in, instead doing some of these more political issues that don't actually affect the people of our state. And boy, is that a great transition to what I want to talk about next year. You know, one month ago, when this legal roundtable was convened, at the very same time, the U.S. Supreme Court was hearing a legal challenge to the Biden administration's forgiveness of student loan debt. Now, regular listeners to this show might be like, whoa, they're about to talk about federal politics. This is a state and local show. Well, this is actually a local issue because this case came out of Missouri. It was filed by the Attorney General's office, and it was initially heard here in federal court by Judge Henry Autry. Marianne, he dismissed it. He said the state of Missouri did not have standing on this case. Talk to me about the standing issues here, because this feels like a big, important thing as far as whether or not the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of the Missouri AG. Well, this is a disturbing trend of... Uh, attorneys general in the red states bringing lawsuits about things that are politically uh, controversial. And certainly the uh, student loan issue has been controversial. But how is the state of Missouri harmed by the fact that the Biden administration is proposing to forgive some of that student loan debt? And honestly, I read the argument that the state attorney general made about why the state of Missouri had standing, and it was so uh, thin, I guess I would call it. Um, you know, because there is a, a, a semi-governmental corporation called Mohila that um, administers all those loans in the state of Missouri. And um, I was sort of chuckling over the fact that the attorney general says, well, you know, if Mohila can't collect uh, on these loans, then, you know, eventually they're not going to pay the state of Missouri back for the money that was loaned or the interest on the money. It turns out Mohila hasn't been paying the state of Missouri any money th since 2006. Um, so, you know, it's very thin. It's very thin. He argues, well, you know, this is unfair to people who didn't borrow money or people who paid their loans back. Well, you know, again, it's a really thin argument. That's like saying, well, we can't give money to poor children because to feed them because their parents could have done it. It's unfair to the people who have money to pay their children. I mean, it's really I feel like I have heard that argument. That seems to be almost where we're going. But, Nicole, do you think I, I've heard even some conservative justices had some questions about this standing issue? If you had to predict this one, do you think this case survives? Wins? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, this is just too attenuated of a standing issue. I mean, so, again, like I said, you have to show proximate cause that something um, that the wrongdoer did hurt you in order to have standing. And they just don't have it here. It's too attenuated. Eric, what's your take on the Supreme Court and, and well, versus Missouri? I, I, I feel like I am violating my role and responsibility to be the typical foil with this panel because I'm usually the one who's the voice from the wilderness. But I agree with everything the other two panelists have said. It probably makes me redundant. Maybe you don't need me next time, but um, <laughs> oh. I agree with them. 
Well, it's, you know, it's nice to see some consensus. There's so much confusion in the world. Today, we're offering you the answers. We've got one last case. I'm going to slide in here in our last two minutes. The state's Second Amendment Preservation Act is unconstitutional. That's according to U.S. District Court Judge Brian C. Wimes. Uh, Nicole, I should let you have a victory lap on this. I think we talked about this on this show about a year ago. And at that point, the panel was also all in agreement. They said this thing is unconstitutional. What's the core issue here? Well, I, the Constitution is, is really the core issue here. And there's something called the Supremacy Clause that basically says that federal laws take priority over any conflicting state laws. And so, yes, about a year ago, we knew that this was getting shot down. And lo and behold, here it is, which, again, is just another example of just wasted political litigation and, and you know, tax dollars from our state. I mean, this was poor lawmaking. And really wreaked havoc with, you know, coming from my background of being a federal prosecutor, really wreaked havoc with these federal agents who were just out there trying to do their jobs. And then state um, police officers who police officers who are often dispatched to federal agencies uh, to do work, I mean, just didn't know what they were supposed to do. It I mean, basically it, said they couldn't enforce gun laws. Right. I mean, just huh. stupid. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to mince words there. So one last question here. Uh, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey gave a statement. He said, quote, we are prepared to defend this statute to the highest court. We anticipate a better result at the Eighth Circuit. Marianne, today, the Eighth Circuit has done some things that not everyone on this panel would agree with. Do you think they're going to get a better result on the Eighth Circuit here? We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. You know, he's also saying, it's interesting, he says, the Second Amendment is what makes the rest of the amendments possible. <laughs> huh. That's an interesting legal theory I've never heard expressed on the legal roundtable. I don't know if anyone would co-sign on, on Andrew Bailey's interpretation of that one. In other words, the right to carry a gun is the thing that makes us all free in Missouri and the U.S., I guess. I don't know. It seems crazy to me. I think you just succinctly stated the state motto right there. Oh, God. So it makes us all free. I guess as journalists, we'd argue the same about the First Amendment. You know, the right to speak freely, everything follows from that. We all have our favorite amendments. So maybe a topic for a future roundtable. I want to thank this particular roundtable for joining us. This is just so enlightening. And, and to hear from these experts has just been such a treat. Uh, Mary Ann Sade, partner at Sade Harper Westoff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was fun. And Nicole Gorofsky, a former prosecutor in both state and federal court, also uh, now at Jenkins and Kling. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Eric Banks, former city councilor, also an attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. With audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Bailey brought a, a rare Quo Warento. I keep saying rare Quo Warento. Rare Quo Warento against Garnett. A Latin action against the I can't pronounce Quo Warento or whatever. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one here. Quo Warento. <laughs> we are all struggling today. Quo Warento. Despite my, you know, Latin in high school, I can't do it. Anyway, I mean, you have to. If we could turn the term quo warrento, which is so freaking hard to say, into basically abandonment of office. I mean, mm. that's a, that's essentially the high level that we're talking about. You essentially have to abandon the office. Boy, that is a high level when you put it that way. Thank you for translating quo warrento into I mean, English. I, I can't say that's the true, correct Latin definition, but, that's, but close. The, legally, that's essentially what it means. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.